0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. I can honestly say I've never had more topics to cover in a single show. I believe that's true. And as a result, this thing's gonna move. Uh, I have so much to hit on. Djokovic stuff, I'm gonna be quick on. Nadal's comeback in Melbourne, I'm gonna offer my thoughts on that. And then ATP Cup, I have a million takeaways. I was up late at night uh, here in California. watching all of the ATP Cup action. I was able to absorb a lot of it and I want to run through a bunch of players. So if you're sick of the Djokovic stuff, uh, obviously you can stick, s- skip ahead and I will be getting to the uh the tennis ball hitting topics um in this show shortly. But I do want to start with with Novak. I've been updating the situation but here's my, my broad thoughts at the moment on everything that's happened, just zooming out. I don't think anybody looks good. There are a lot of fine details and small kind of twists and turns that have occurred that I'm not going to get into here. Reality is, big picture, I think there are three parties, Tennis Australia, the Australian government, and Novak Djokovic. I think they all look really bad right now. So the best way to look at this is a comedy of errors, in my opinion. And I don't generally like these kinds of takes, especially in like the political world. I think it's a it's a way to score cheap points when you just say everyone is bad and everything is bad. I I hate to do that, but I can't work my way around it here. I can't get around it. I, I really do think that this has been such a mess up on so many levels that. I really don't think anyone comes out looking good. So let me just go through those three parties. That's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to start with the Australian government, then I'm going to hit Tennis Australia, and then I'm going to hit Novak. Uh, Australian government, at the end of the day, it's unclear what their rules are. Whether you agree with the rules that are unclear or if you or their overall outlook on COVID, which has obviously been stringent, uh, whether you agree or disagree with that, it's unclear what their rules are for entry. And you can point to sources that say that if you've been, if you've tested positive in the last six months that you're allowed to enter, you can find other sources that say you're not. So, you know, regardless of what you think might be the clear answer there, you know, here, there's not, there's no clear answer. Uh, There are vast differences in the way Novak was treated versus the way the other two People were treated using the same exemption. The other two were initially let in and they had their visas canceled. Novak was initially canceled. Now he's been let in, barring a decision from immigration minister Alex Hawke, which is pending. So, of course, it's unclear what their rules are. You have two separate situations using the same rule that were treated completely differently. ATAGI, which has the authority federally, told Craig Tiley no in emails. That was reported by the Herald Sun. Members have since reiterated no. Victorian website says yes, but it's unclear if that's for domestic travel or international travel. Morrison said it was up for Vic, up to Victoria, changed his mind. The Victorian premier said uh, yes, that that the exemption is okay. Uh, it was Craig Tiley's job, and here's how I know it was unclear, that nobody knows what the rules are. It was Craig Tiley's job to find the answer on this. And he himself said that there was a lot of conflicting information. He has these people's numbers in his phone. It is literally his job to get an answer from these people. And he couldn't. So I don't think they know what the rules are. <laughs> and I, I I gather that throughout the situation that there have been instances where the federal government and the state governments have been disjointed and not aligned and fighting politically. I, I understand that to be the case in Australia. Certainly, certainly that's not the only place where that happens. Certainly, I've seen that in the United States. But the, the confusion around this is so inexcusable. And obviously, part of the inconsistencies might come from, obviously, political motivation, political gains. Uh, but that stuff aside, the reality is, you create rules, you create laws, and it needs to be clear what those rules and what those regulations are. And it's not, and it's still not. And that's awful. And that's inexcusable. Not to mention they didn't follow procedure when handling Novak's visa. And that ultimately caused the judge to overturn their initial decision to cancel the visa. Tennis Australia. Buck stops with them. You know, they're the oversight. Now, Look, sometimes the leader gets blamed for things that happen on the ground, and it's not fair. I don't think it. I don't think this is one of those cases. They are the chaperones here. They are the people who communicate. They are the bridge between the government and the players, and it's their job to make sure that everyone is clear on what's supposed to happen. Did Novak do everything Craig Tiley told him he had to do? There has been no evidence. No evidence that Novak didn't do everything Craig Tiley told him to do. And there were still issues. That's on Tennis Australia. The situa- The situation at the border was largely, in my opinion, their fault. Because, again, there was nothing that could have been done. And that and the judgment said, you know, what more could Novak do? And that was the famous line, I think, from Judge Kelly that ended up picking up the most traction I think that's kind of what it referred to, which is that Novak followed all the instructions here that were given to him, that were provided to him. Uh, but again, it was unclear what the rules were. It still is. Um, anyway, that's tennis. That's on Tennis Australia. Uh, Novak, as it pertains to what happened at the border, I see him as more of a victim. You know, that's that's my view on exactly you know what happened at the border. But then overall, wh- what does he look like zooming out from that? And there are a lot more questions. First off, he needs to explain the events of December 16th and the following days where, uh, you know, he tested positive for COVID. Here's what the documentation says. Here's what we know right now. We know that he tested on December 16th. We know that his, the lab processed his results in seven hours. We don't have verifiable proof uh, that, you know, where the, uh, how fast the communication is. Generally, this stuff is automated. Uh, and once the lab processes your result, you get an email. Uh, that, that's, that's my experience. I've tested with three, four different things, but the U.S. is different from Serbia. I'm not going to make any assumptions there. But it got processed in seven hours. We know that. Here's what else we know. We know when Novak asked when he tested positive, he said December 16th. Um, and and that was the date. That's when he said he tested positive. We know that Novak's brother, Jorda, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing his name right. I've never heard it said, but Jorda Djokovic and his father were asked about this, and they ended the press conference immediately. They said the press conference, Jorda said the press conference is adjourned. That was their response. They had plenty of time, I think, to... Uh, I mean, I I would be surprised if that question caught them off guard. It was it had plenty of traction on social media and that's how they responded. So right now it doesn't look good. You know, it has Novak. Have we completely confirmed that 100% that Novak and by the way, I really wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt here. And when some people immediately assumed the worst, I didn't. But with the fact that the lab processed it in seven hours, the fact that that was their response to being asked, you know, the brother and the father, uh, that was their response. No response at all. Panic. Panic was their response when asked about that, if we're being honest here. Um, It doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good. So Novak is going to get a chance to answer for that. And let's see what he says. But right now it looks really bad. Um, you know, I guess the other alternative, obviously, if he didn't, um, and I don't know if I fully explain this, I kind of assume that you guys n- n- would know what I'm talking about, but just to cross my T's and dot my eyes, Novak was at public functions on both the 17th and the 18th. He did a photo shoot on the 18th. He was at uh, an award ceremony with, uh, or a fundraiser with children unmasked, no distancing on the 17th uh so i mean he was at public functions with a lot of people basically needs to be explained just just does N- needs to be answered for obviously if the test were if the test results were fabricated that wouldn't be any better right so so it's it's not good that's not good okay The last thing with Novak is obviously if Australians are offended by his use of an exemption that clearly wasn't designed for him, I can't really blame them. But then if I'm in Novak's shoes, of course, I'm going to use the exemption. So, you know, he he could have, he could have taken a pass on Australia, been like, look, you guys, you know, the the law of the land is to be vaccinated and I don't want to be vaccinated. So I'm going to take a pass here he could have done that but is that really you know is that is it really realistic that he would have done that i'm not so sure with that being said if if australians or outsiders feel like he's using the exemption in bad faith they're not entirely wrong again the exemption is not for people who don't want to get vaccinated the exemption is designed for people who can't get vaccinated uh, that that is, I don't think anyone can argue with that. It's designed for people who can't get vaccinated, and obviously Novak has had every opportunity to be vaccinated if he wanted to. So that's it. Everybody looks bad. Novak doesn't look good. Tennis Australia doesn't look good. The Australian government doesn't look good. I'm gonna leave it at that for now. Uh, some people have asked about Novak tennis-wise. I do think that he will be fine if. You know, again, this this could this may not be over. Alex Hawk could uh, recancel his visa. That's just the power that that he has in in the structure of their government. Assuming he plays, I just want to say, tennis wise, Novak is going to be fine. In terms of fitness, the fitness you lose in three four days. Uh, obviously not being able to eat how he wants, not being able to hit any tennis balls. Three, four days when you're coming from 100% and Novak had a good training block in Marbella by all accounts. When you're coming from 100%, three, four days off, you're going to recover pretty quickly. I, I really think that he'll be fine. Mentally, he's really good at tuning this stuff out. But is it going to be exhaustive for him? It, it could be. It's really hard to say, and I, I haven't really decided how I feel about that in terms of mentally what it's going to be like. Um, it could end up just being a distraction, an area where he's losing focus. What will the crowd be like? I, I don't know. If it's a hostile crowd, I have no doubt that Novak can handle that um, and win tennis matches. If it's a disruptive crowd... To you know, if it reaches a level that we haven't really seen before, that could have different effects. That's a little bit worse than a crowd that is simply cheering for the opponent. So I um I have no doubts that physically he's going to be fine, but we'll see about the external stuff. All in all, I wouldn't worry. All right, let's get to Rafa. I want to talk talk about Rafa. Uh, he was one of uh, a couple of players who made the decision to play the um, to play the 250 in Melbourne and Adelaide. Well, he he played in Melbourne, but I want to just quickly shout out Gael Monfils. Um, he looked amazing, and tennis was. Uh, I think everyone kind of roots for him to be himself, and he wasn't himself for a while after the pandemic. He was one of the players who made the decision not to play ATP Cup, to play one of the 250s instead. And it was a good decision because he would have opened his season, played Daniil Medvedev, Alex Minaur, Matteo Berrettini. Could have been 0-3, right? You, you don't know what's going to happen. Could have been 0-3. Instead, he's confident. He has a title. And he was really dominant. He won over, over 50% of his return games going into the final. So Rafa made the same decision, I think for the same reason. And that's why I mentioned Monfils as a side. Rafa decided to not play ATP Cup. He probably could have. Now, maybe he wouldn't have been. Uh, maybe the COVID stuff would have ended up getting in the way because ATP Cup did start a couple of days before Melbourne. But he wanted to play that 250. And it turns out being pretty good for him. He did have a withdrawal, which probably didn't wasn't really helpful for him. He needs matches. That's that's kind of the point. So I don't think Talon Grigspor, who uh, I, I was interested to see him against Rafa as well, just with the form that he was in, uh, the winning streak that he was on. He withdrew. That wasn't great. But Nadal ultimately beats Barankas in straight 7-5 in the second after not serving out the match at 5-4. Then he beats Roussevori, same exact is a better player than Barrancas, but he beats him in basically the same fashion. Wins the first set, a little tighter, 6-4. Then uh, Rafa gets broken serving for the match, but breaks at 5-6 and wins the second set, 7-5. Then in the final, he has this unconventional, super interesting opponent in Maxime Cressy, who's a serve volleyer. Uh, They're back. They're back. Uh, It didn't die with, Michael Yodra and Taylor Dent. uh, We got another. Or, I mean, Feli Lopez is still around. So there was never really a point on tour where nobody was doing it regularly. But Cressy's the young blood. Cressy's going to keep the serve volley on every point alive. So fascinating opponent there. And Cressy was pretty bad at the start. Really nervous. Nadal took advantage of that. Um, Well, I mean, look, it was a tight first set, I would say. Then in the second set, Rafa finally kind of keyed in on a return game in a way that was really positive, hit three return winners. That was the break, Um, took charge there. But ultimately, with Nadal's form, broadly speaking, I do feel like he was there for the taking if he met the right opponent. I think he would have lost. His forehand just wasn't really dialed in. We've talked about it many times. The game runs through the forehand, the confidence on that shot, the ability for Rafa to sustain aggression on that. Was there a little bit of diminished physicality? Yes, but I thought the biggest problem was uh mostly just the inconsistencies on his forehand side and that's why it wasn't the best version of Nadal same issues in Abu Dhabi as far as as far as I'm concerned just trying to fire up that forehand and you know if the fore until the forehand gets going the baseline game isn't going to be able to get going that was the biggest thing and then just being clutch right there were just some Weird kind of nervous, unclutch moments that we've seen from Nadal in the last year too often. He just needs to work through that, and it's a it's a matter of confidence. It's a matter of comfort. It got better really towards the end of clay court season last year, but we're again in a spot where we're seeing some uncharacteristic mistakes, untimely double faults, bad forehand misses at bad moments and those are the kinds of things he really is going to need and want to get out of his game and I think he knows that but ultimately it's another unbelievable comeback that Rafa has pulled off here where I don't think I don't think he's very open cuz he wants to be modest. I don't know how open he's been about how bad it was, but his coach Carlos Moya has been and it, it was really bad. And once again, Nadal starts from scratch and puts in the hard yards rehabbing and comes back and wins another ATP title. It, it shouldn't be taken for granted that he's at 35 years old and he continues to have the willpower to, uh, to do this. And this is an example, again, I do think the big three. They, they push each other. I think they have elongated each other's careers. I don't think Rafa—I question if Rafa would still be going through this if he didn't have uh, these worthy competitors pushing him forward. Um, but here's what Moya said um, about the months following Nadal's 2021 shutdown. Moya said, and I quote, There were many training sessions when we could barely do anything. Knock the ball around and that's it. After he finished in Washington, Rafa went almost two months without playing. Long break. Starting up again isn't a question of two days. Even after the treatment, he still had pain and problems. That's why many sessions were only one hour or 40 minutes, playing without being able to move. Even days off, days when after arriving in Mallorca, we couldn't train. We tried to get back to what he was doing well. Uh, It's difficult to try to improve things in such a short space of time. So, I mean, Rafa, this has been hard, is kind of what I'm gathering. It was not an easy four months for him. Then he had the COVID setback. So, I would, you know, temper expectations. Didn't play great in Melbourne. Still won the title because he's a much better player than anyone he played. Um... And this was a really good week for him because he got three matches in. He was able to get through them much better than losing. Believe me, winning's much better than losing. I know that sounds silly, but I mean mentally. Um, so it was a good week for him. That's what I thought. But d- did it? Did it make me super op- optimistic about Australia? Not really. Not really. I, I just level wise, I don't know how anyone could really have that takeaway. Good call, though, not to play ATP Cup and a good week for Rafa. And I continue to admire this part of his legacy, which is going to be he is such a warrior when it comes to rehab and fighting through uh, these injuries. Checking the time. 20 minutes. Okay. 10 minutes rapid fire here. ATP Cup. I want to start with the biggest winner. Biggest winner to me was Felix. Felix. I can't really say enough. First of all, his shot tolerance and and his patience is going up, and I think he's defending more. I think he's more patient. He's understanding that he needs to wait. He's understanding that he needs to keep the ball in play for longer uh, periods of time. And is he still? Does his does his forehand still? miss sometimes when he is in attacking positions yes but that's not really that's never really been my biggest issue my biggest issue is he looks at neutral positions and he he turns them into attacking positions and he forces the issue he misses he misses based on shot selection that's been my biggest issue and he he wasn't doing that enough as much but then my other thing is just how he was handling the nerves. And I think that there were big breakthroughs last year, beating Zverev at Wimbledon, making the uh the quarterfinal there, obviously making the semifinal at the US Open, beating Tiafoe there. Hold on just a sec. Those were uh those were big breakthroughs, but this was a a, st- a step up in my opinion. Obviously, he beats Zverev And here's why I was so impressed with the Zverev win. In order for, you know, the way the groups played out, Canada had to win that match in order to advance to uh, the, or, or they could have won the doubles, but they had to win that tie, I should say, in order to advance to the semifinals. Germany was already eliminated. So Zverev was playing a match that, Didn't technically matter. There was no real look-ahead spot, so he was going to play as hard as he could. And Felix was playing a match with pressure. That's a horrible spot for Felix. I thought that was going to be a really difficult match for him to win, and he was able to do it. Then he makes the final, and... Let me backtrack. In the semifinal, he had a tough afternoon. Medvedev absolutely smoked him. He didn't know what to do. It, it was He was totally outmatched. Then I thought it bled over into the doubles a little bit, but he, he got it together. He, emotionally and mentally, he had to kind of turn the page at some point in the doubles and, and play well for his team, and he was able to do that. So that was another hurdle. But then in the final, it was going to be kind of about About again dealing with the pressure. And obviously Felix has this 0-8 record in finals, 0 and 16 sets. This is not gonna count against that record or for that record. It's a team event. So Felix is still 0-8. That was half a that was half a win. That was kind of a Felix win in a final. It, It was half. Again, not officially, but if you just, in my opinion, from a pressure perspective, you have the pressure of playing for your country, the pressure of playing for your team, and him individually once again knowing that that this was a final, <laughs> that that F word, the F word, so to speak. And Bautista Gut, he's been amazing, and he's going to make you earn everything. Felix was un unbelievable in that match. I mean, he ended up really ultimately what happened is he he broke RBA physically. Bautista just did too much running in that match. he was getting pushed around too much the the games were long, the points were long, and Bautista was just doing all the running to to Felix's credit, and he broke. RBA broke physically and then Felix was able to to come away with the second set and and the match. What a win though. I mean Felix to me is the winner of the ATP Cup. And next time he's in a final it's going to be hard to not see any scenario where um where that's where what he did last week is going to help him mentally. I just I can't see it not helping him. I, I think it's a big breakthrough for him. Obviously, he moved up to number nine in the rankings, so that's nice for him as well. I'm celebrating because he's already reached my uh, my top 10 prediction spot for him, so it's good. Uh, chapeau obviously great effort by him as well. Uh, had COVID, lost to Dan Evans, started terribly, ended up kind of running the table from there, but nothing... Nothing crazy from Chapeau, if if we're being honest. I mean, you know, it's just good that it was definitely the best tennis he's played since Wimbledon. And mentally, he was totally in a rut in the second half of 2021. So good to see he's turned the page um, or, I guess, kind of restarted, reset in the off season. That's nice. Good to see. And congratulations to Canada. Yeah, these two young players... I know that they've given Canadian tennis fans a lot of agita. I know that they've only won one title in their young careers, and a lot of people would have thought that it would be more than that by now, or that, or a lot of tennis Canadian tennis fans would have thought that their progress would be a little bit smoother or a little bit quicker. But what an accomplishment this was, you know, for a 22-year-old and a 23-year-old, sorry, 21-year-old uh, Felix and a 22-year-old Chapeau for them to uh to do this on their own in a ATP Cup format where you have a lot of the best players in the world big accomplishment for them and and they should be they should be pretty proud especially because they had to play the doubles as well RBA was incredible he usually is at this time I mentioned it but he was uh 4 and 0 heading into the final and he was playing at first singles, beat Gareen, beat Kasparud, um, beat Dusan Lajovic. then he beat uh Diego Schwartzman. No, sorry, Herkoch, sorry, Herkoch, which was a, a really good win. I mean, Herkoch was playing incredible as well. He draws his confidence from from training, you know, mentally. A lot of players need to win matches before they feel confident. RBA feels confident in his training, and also his game is obviously so physical that he feels fresh this time of year, and it helps him, so his record in January is incredible, it's so much better than it is in all the rest of the months, he has four titles in January since 2016, and that includes two years where he he played ATP Cup, Um, so that doesn't really give him a chance to win an individual title. But his, his record at ATP Cup is, is incredible. And you just start to wonder, when is that going to translate? And he's running out of time, I understand, at age 34. He's made one Australian Open quarterfinal. But when is that going to translate into better Australian Open results? And that's kind of the question. But it's interesting to see RBA just continuing to be really, really good this time of year. Hercocz, I mentioned he was really good. Um, Beach Schwartzman. Beat Titi Pass, right? He he did beat Titi Pass. Let me let me just make sure. Uh, but I think he's trying to do the right things, and that's good to see. When I say do the do the right things, no, he beat Thanos. That's why in my head I'm like, did he beat Titi Pass? I don't remember that match. He beat Aristostalos Thanos, so less impressive. Uh, Metrovelli, but yeah, I, I mean, really, he his the only match that he. Had a chance to show what he's made out of. is against Diego Schwartzman, who he crushed. And then against Bautista Agut, a match that he almost won, and he lost in a third-set tiebreak. Really high quality. But all in all, I just want to say, I think he's he gets it. Hercoc gets it, and that's really good to see. The acceleration on the forehand, it seems like he's worked on it. It seems like he's trying to hit his forehand from the back of the court with more aggression. Did he miss too many still? is it? Does it come naturally to him? No, not yet. But I think he gets it. The other thing that he gets, and this was a theme throughout the latter stages of 2021, is that he needs to come forward. So that is just a sign that his relationship with Craig Boynton works and that he's bought in because oftentimes what it takes for a player to fulfill their potential is to understand how they need to play. And I just think that Herkoc time and time again is showing that he understands how he needs to play. Stefano Tsitsipas had a a weird up-and-down ATP cup. Um, The communication with the elbow has been so confusing because he came in saying that he feels amazing, that he's pain-free for the first time in a really long time, that it's fantastic. And then it just wasn't. So I mean, it's really confusing. He played the one match against Diego Schwartzman, and I thought he looked really good. Schwartzman, best match I've seen him play on a hard court up there at least. Uh, that's how I felt about Schwartzman's performance. Titi looked fine. He he just got tired, which is understandable. But for for two sets, I thought he looked very good. Then he got tired, or maybe a set and a half. Then he got tired, which is understandable. Uh, I think he's just undercooked at this point, Titi But as far as the Australian Open is concerned, I'm so confused by the messaging. It came out that he was considering taking a a wild card into the 250 this week. I don't think he's done that. So he's going to take it off. Uh, He played some of the doubles. That confused me. If you're trying to kind of take the load off, why play doubles? I guess it's like an in-between and you can kind of take it easy but still play. I'm confused. That's it. Uh, The messaging has been so confusing for me. And I don't know. Long term though, I think it's he seems fine because when he's been playing, the serve has looked good. And I I'm pretty sure it sounds like that's the shot that puts the most stress on his elbow. So that's that's all I have to say about Titi Pass. Um I wanna say that Fritz easily a top twenty player. He looks super good, easily a top twenty player. I expect him to to be around the 15 mark shortly. Just with the way he's playing. If you just look at group C. Which was the group of death. Um, I hit on Felix. Hit on Fritz. I want to get through these guys. Alexander Zverev. Not much to say about him honestly. He looked he looked pretty good. Uh, Nori. 0-3. Nori went 0-3. No reason to panic. I don't really expect him. To win any of those matches. In particular, Zverev, Fritz, and FAA. And he just ran into really good performances. So, no panic there. Daniil Medvedev, he was upset by Hubert Hurkacz. Uh, sorry, Hugo Umber. Uh That's a tough matchup for him. I think with the angles that Hurkacz brings, the way he takes away time, the way he he moves forward, and the way he uses precision, not pace, to attack... It just makes Medvedev's defense a little bit worse. It makes it look a, lot, a little bit worse than it really is. And the slice serve out wide obviously is an issue for Medvedev because he just can't cut off that angle or chooses not to. So that's a guy now who's 2-0 against Medvedev who gets up for top 10 opponents. But other than that, Medvedev did look uh, really good against uh, Berrettini and he looked really good against Demonor, And then he looked really good against Felix. So you can't... You can't read too much into the umbear upset. He did physically go away in that match, but it's all right. You, you give him a pass. First match of the season, I still look. It certainly doesn't put to rest my concerns that someone can drag him into deep waters in a long five-set match. I still, I still have questions about that. It, it didn't put that to rest, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to lean on that in terms of making any argument. I'm not going to submit that as evidence for Medvedev having any physical concerns. Uh, but the offseason is very short, and that's something to monitor because he just didn't have—he only really had three weeks to prepare prepare for this season, which is not quite ideal. Important tournament for Alex D. Menor mentally after the 2021 that was— I mean, he won two titles, but it was just not good. He was just totally inconsistent, losing record overall. And I think mentally this was good for Demonor to build up some confidence he had. Uh, he had some good wins here. Uh two guys who aren't really playing as good as uh, or as well as their ranking suggests on the negative side, Gareen and Laevic. Gareen, he's not beating good players. He's seventeen in the world right now. And I just don't think he's a top-20 player. And I I don't like saying that about a guy. The ranking system is fair and just, generally speaking. But he's not beating top-50 players, much less top-20 players. So I'm just not seeing it with him at the moment. He's got great physical tools. He's got a heavy forehand. He's got incredible speed around the court. But he's just not executing any part of his game on a consistent basis. The serve, the forehand... The offense, the defense—it's—it's it's not there right now. He's not—he's not, he's not beating—he's not beating top fifty players right now. So his ranking just—it—it's inflated. And then another guy whose ranking is inflated, I think, is Lajevic, You know, who is Serbia's number one in absence of of Djokovic, and he's—he—he he doesn't look good. He looks—he looks old right now in the way he's moving. Just physically, he's not—he's not. He's not I don't think giving himself the best chance. And right now he's 33 in the world. So those are just two guys who I think didn't look good. After I'm going through guys who did. Vili picked up an injury early on. So I don't know what happened there. But bizarre tournament for him. I mean, you know, Georgia. It's actually a good segue. I want to talk about the format before I wrap, it, wrap things up here. ATP Cup as a whole. First of all, it's missing the crowd. Um, obviously, there's a couple issues. There's oversaturation with Davis Cup and ATP Cup back to back. But just just like with Davis Cup, the way that, the way team competitions are really best is with great crowds. And in 2020, that existed. Next two years, it hasn't. Hard to judge the competition in pandemic times without these crowds, because it's all about crowds. But ultimately, there there are issues. There are issues of fairness. I'm actually less concerned about that. Although I do think it's a discussion to be had, my bigger issue is with the entertainment, um, and there's some issues. There's some issues with this tournament, with the way that the top players qualify. In my opinion, it shouldn't be like this. You have too many matches and too many players that don't belong to be playing a high level tour event, or don't don't deserve and don't belong in a high level tour event. And it kills the product, especially when you have injuries and you have guys pulling out like Basilashvili and Tsitsipas. Greece and Georgia are prime examples. They're teams that they don't have depth. And then even with Russia, now Roman Saffilin ended up being an incredible story, and it was awesome. But it was kind of lucky because you have a guy like Karen Hatchinov who doesn't play the ATP Cup uh, because, I mean— you know what? I don't even want to go there, because Russia's fine. Russia has plenty of depth, and it could have been a situation where a guy like Karen Hatchinov not playing ATP Cup, and then stuff happens, and then really Russia could have used him, it, it becomes a, a difficult situation. But scratch that. It's really about your your Greece's, your Georgia's, um, Chile. Chile has a challenger-level player in, in Tabilo at number two. So does, uh, so does Poland and Camille Maishruk. So it's a little bit better. But ultimately, I really do feel like there should be an averaging out of the top players. Norway with Durasovic at number two. There needs to be an averaging out of the top players. And I understand it's very hard to stomach a guy like Pass or a guy like Kasparud. Not qualifying for an event, any event, because those are players who qualify for each and every event as top 10 players. But if this is going to be a team event, then this is a team event and qualification should reflect that. You can't have so many matches that are terrible matches because one of the players doesn't really deserve to be in that position. And... I want to say, like, oh, there's going to be a great story with a guy like Safulin, who's... But again, a guy like Safulin is a challenger-level player. That's completely different than someone like Derocevic or Metrovelli of Georgia or Pervolarakis of Greece, who's a, like a sub-challenger-level player, an ITF-level player. And it it kills the product, and I just I just think it's not fair to some of the better players who can't play ATP Cup. And it it rubs me a little bit the wrong way. So I just want to see the best nations compete in this format. And I, I, I like the ATP Cup. I think it's a really good way to start off the season. I really do. I like the team zones kind of thing. I like the way... I think more can be done with behind the scenes and stuff like that. But overall, I really do like it. And I think with a crowd, it can be an even better event. But you have to average out the top two or three players, and that should determine um, which teams qualify, in my opinion. That's my tweak. So I wonder if they'll do anything about that. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, uh, that is it. That is all. I have run through everything that I wanted to run through different kind of Monday match analysis. I know normally I go in depth on kind of like one match and I know I just threw a billion things at you, but that's how it had to be. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.